and welcome to the latest installment in Pop Screams Boy Month. We are that part of the Geek Show podcast network that likes to cover the good, the bad, and the befuddling of movies, either starving by or about weird aliens looking for water on Earth to bring back to their home planet. No, the podcast covers a broad range of musical and cinematic genres, from country and western to hip-hop, from documentaries to science fiction. I'm your host, Graham Williamson. I'm a film critic for The Geek Show and for Horrified.com, the British horror website. And I've been joined this week by... I'm Rob Simpson. Hey! Yo! It was, Hello it was there! A, it was in an advert, and I thought that person who did that advert thinks hip-hop's still in 1992, and I thought, oh, isn't that sweet? <laughs> <laughs> Where can people find you, Rob? Um, oh, yeah, of course, miles away there. Um, you can find me, I'm the host of Directors Uncut. You can find us on all good podcast providers, and it's also this very podcast, Sister Podcast. Indeed. It's never brother podcast, but yeah, Sister Podcast. So yes, it's never brother podcast, isn't it? That's quite weird, yeah. Yeah. But... We are in the absolute control centre, the dark heart of Bowie Month right now with one of his very few leading roles, Nicholas Roeg's mm. 1976 science fiction feature, The Man Who Fell to Earth, a film about which I, I mean, I, this sounds like a big boast, but I think I know everything about this film. That is a big boast, yeah. Oh, yeah. Other, other than what the shit it's about, actually. I forgot that bit. But everything else... I think I'm pretty clued in. Um, I think it's one of these movies, like uh, like a Lynch movie, where you can bring your sort of own readings to it, mm, mm-hmm. which makes it quite an interesting and cool movie, I think. Yeah, because the part of what I think about when I think about The Man Who Fell to Earth is that anecdote that patron saint of Bowie fans, Adam Buxton, said once. <laughs> Uh, which is that when he was young, his mother said there was a film on television. It looked a bit like Star Wars, but it had that pop star in you liked. Uh, so they sat down and watched it together, which probably wasn't the best decision. No, I mean, it looks like Star Wars. That's a bit of a leap. I think it's like, that's like old British person talk for it's got aliens in it. <laughs> yeah, I think maybe for three minutes. Yeah. If that, <laughs> but it got him through the door, so completely yes, uh, and it was no doubt a very uncomfortable watch for young Adam, as uh, as yeah. he himself said. You even see his laughing gnome in one scene. <laughs> it reminds me of uh, when we did Cinema Critica together. We had one question uh, about awkward movies to see with your parents. Oh boy, yeah. This would be a good one, but I remember a friend of the pods then, uh, Swarte, said he watched Black Swan with his mother, which I think is always something that we always remember. <laughs> well, that, that's kind of the same thing as the same problem that Adam Buxton's mum had in that it was mm. almost certainly sold to her as a movie about ballet. And you think, I mean, yeah. it is, but... I mean, this is technically a movie about David Bowie. Yeah. Technically. I mean, it, he could stretch this and say he's not actually acting it's just him being himself yes and I I think Bowie himself said something similar he said he he was very aware that what was required of him was to go down on set and just be that there were a lot of parallels between Thomas Jerome Newton and where he was at in the mid 70s 
Yeah, which makes it interesting, I think. I mean, you could make an accusation of certain actors where, I know, Jack Nicholson, for example, he's always just Jack Nicholson. But with a person who is as enigmatic as David Bowie, to just be David Bowie, that is not an insult whatsoever. Yeah, you always have to put, like, any time you talk about Bowie as a person, you always have to put, like, scare quotes around that because part of the reason why he famously had so many alter egos was because he was a very private guy and he was a very private guy towards the end of his life certainly uh, where he lived essentially incognito in New York he had this famous trick for remaining anonymous in New York involving a newspaper I don't know if you've heard it I might have but it's not sounding familiar so far If he was on public transport, he used to carry with him a Greek language newspaper. Uh, (laughs) He didn't read Greek at all. He could never speak it. But if he saw someone who seemed to be thinking, is that David Boy? He'd open the paper and make them think, oh, no, it's just some old Greek bloke, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, that's very good. It's a very good story. But the man who fell to earth, I mean, for such a complex film, it has a fairly straightforward plot line, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, the title says it all, really. A man, an alien, falls to earth, um, and he just wants to make as much money as possible to go back home and bring his uh, kids back and his parent and his mother and his wife back with him. That's that's it. Yeah. That's, that's all there is. That's all there is. Um there is a book by Walter Tevis uh, that it's based on. Um, Tevis is now probably most famous for writing the original novel that uh, Netflix made the series Queen's Gambit out of. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the time, he was most famous for writing The Hustler, which was turned into a very successful film starring Paul Newman. The Man Who Fell to Earth was his second book, and he always said it was very autobiographical that after he became famous he just felt like an alien and he could not go back to any part of his everyday life again. Yeah, it is a a very thinly veiled analogy, isn't it? Mm, Um, Definitely. As far as this. And it works especially well with uh, David Bowie. Mm. He's he's from North London, isn't he? He's just a David Jones from North London, humble boy, who Marlon became big. Mm. Um, and you could make the, the debate that this movie is just sort of a longing of him wanting to spend more time with his family. But the yeah. pressures of huge success made it impossible. So in that, in, in that metaphor, little bit, little alien is, is uh, Duncan Jones. Oh, I like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's good. Um, uh, yes. And let, let me see if I can put this further. The alien wife obviously has to be Angie Bowie and Mary Louise Mick Jagger. I don't know. I'm stretching it, this one. Yeah, it works. He did a few songs with Mick Jagger. They're never his best songs, but he did a few. No. <laughs> but yeah, around the time that he was making this, uh, he was in a bad way his cocaine addiction was at its worst his marriage to angie was breaking up i mean the thing that most astonished me and you'll understand why this is astonishing uh if you've seen the movie listeners is that before he made the film they had to put him on a special diet to add some weight to his figure 
Yeah, yeah, he's he's frighteningly skinny in this. And and you look at it and you think, hang on, that's him after they had him eating ice cream. What the hell did he look like before? There's, there's a scene in it which I, when you give it that context, it's it's horrible. But mm. within the context of the movie, um, it's kind of silly. Uh, I can't remember what kicks it off, but um, Dave Bowie has a bit of a to do in a lift, I think. Yeah, yeah. And passes out, blood growing, uh, coming out of his nose. Um, and Mary Lou picks him up and carries him to his hotel room and puts him down in his bed. And it, it's such a bizarre image. But mm. when you put that context to it, it's really tragic. Yeah, you imagine... Uh, I'd never thought about it before, but maybe it wasn't difficult to get David Bowie to have a nosebleed at that point. No. No, I mean, that's the height of his fame, isn't it, really, mid-70s? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, not on a worldwide scale. He was only starting to crack America, but in, in British terms, he was a national obsession. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you don't... Uh, to be a... Well, that sort of stature, that young. Mm. There's not many people that he's really got as peers. Maybe the Beatles... Um. Queen, maybe, and that's about it. It's interesting, yeah, because but what one of the strange things about Boy is that the mystery of him became as much an obsession as the music in those early days. You know, when the Beatles became famous, part of their appeal early on was that they seemed like normal, relatable, mm. likable Liverpool lads. Yes. Uh, whereas with Bowie, there's always this sense in the coverage at the time is, you know, who, who is this guy? Is he straight? Is he gay? Is he a man? Is he a woman? Is he actually an alien? Yeah, yeah. And I understand that entirely, you know. I mean, especially when you borrow it with the, the movie and its subtext, he just wants to live his own life and you can't live it if they've got people outside your front door asking who these people are in your life. And there's no separation, really. It's Maybe a self-defence mechanism. Yeah, yeah. I think that Boy at the time was very interested in spectacular burnouts. You know, a lot of the influences on Ziggy Stardust were people like the legendary Stardust Cowboy, that kind of novelty rock and roller who he borrowed the name from, who, I mean, these people were genuinely mentally ill and they couldn't hold a career together. And I think you can always view things like Ziggy Stardust and this film as his kind of cautionary tales to himself, his way of thinking. But if I push this too far, I'm going to become this, aren't I? Yeah, I mean, yeah, as far as uh, pop stars who crash and burn, mm. that's a very rare trait, that sort of self-awareness. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I think he'd have been... Would he have been older at that point? To be part of Club 28? 27, yeah, 27. that's a good question. Um, so maybe he saw that, you know, and there's a, there's a trend there, and maybe that frightened him, so I don't know. It's maybe, hypothetical. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's a good point. There's a documentary that was released in 1973, which, according to Roeg, is exactly why he was cast in this role, that they'd been going through loads of actors and loads of non-actors. Um, the novelist Michael Crichton was Roeg's <laughs> big 
left field swing for the role of Thomas Jerome Newton. <laughs> it's not about like dinosaurs or robots going insane and <laughs> eating everybody. That's his, that's his go-to. I mean, maybe that's why he would have worked. Maybe he'd have, Rogue would have just said, all right, Michael, try not to think of a theme park going crazy. And he'd just been stood there like, that That would have been how we'd get the alienation across. He would look so confused. Yeah, yeah, it's that's an interesting casting decision. They were desperate by that point, I think it's fair to say. They'd thought early on in the process, they'd been thinking about Peter O'Toole and Robert Redford, but the budget was nowhere near enough to, to accommodate them. Maybe not Robert Redford. He, he, that had been too much, I think. I think so too, yeah. And I really like Robert Redford, but I think part of what's great about The Man Who Fell to Earth is that it is a disguised movie about what it's like being an Englishman in America. Yes, yes it is, which is terrible. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, he's uh, manipulated every single way, isn't it? Uh, yeah. There's, I can't remember, something that Rip Torn says. Um, so, oh, you're an Englishman. Oh, well, at least it's better than... What does he say? What's he compare him to? I can't is, uh, remember. Wait, uh, is it a Russian? I can't remember. Russian or, or German, something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's nice to know where we stood in the world at that point in time. <laughs> yes. Oh man, Ripton in this movie. Uh, Ripton is incredible in this movie. I think. Oh, it took me a while to recognise him because you know, for what I've experienced of him, he, he's been an older man and bald. Yeah. Here he's young and virile, and it's sort of very virile. <laughs> oh boy, yeah. <laughs> it's it's funny, isn't it? Everyone always says the sex scene in the movie Rogue made before this don't look now always gets all that speculation about is it real or is it not? And I never quite got that. Uh, Donald Sutherland famously said it, it's very hard to get sexually aroused when you've got a camera behind you with someone <laughs> barking orders at you. Yeah. Um, it's even harder now with all of the lights and like twice as much crew, but yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> but I was always surprised that never happened with the man who fell to earth because the sex scenes in this movie are genuinely extraordinary aren't they they're feral well there's not just that as well it's the way they're edited i mean that's the one thing you'd always say about nick rogue probably yeah. some of the greatest editing in cinema history i'll go as far as to say but it's got one of these sex scenes of Ripton uh sleeping with an 18 year old basically i think that's what they say yes yeah um and it cuts it across with uh, i think bowie's sort of been befuddled by tv and he's just watching tv and he's like what, what is this Mm, uh, look yeah. all over his face and the cut to and from the, the two of the scenes wild decision we should take a pit stop to talk a bit about Rogue because he is such I mean there's a lot of talented people involved in this film and we're here for Bowie but Rogue is such a huge part of why this film is as good as it is oh yeah I mean it's not his first time working with a pop star either his no. debut with Donald Kamel was with Mick Jagger funnily enough indeed yes yeah that's a, that's a striking film if ever there was one and that that is kind of an interesting one because in many ways Bowie and Jagger were the opposite when it came to acting you know Jagger hadn't had any acting training and in most of his screen roles uh, you can tell I think yeah 
he's, he's, he's all right in performance, I think. He's great in performance, yeah. yeah. Vogue and Kamel knew exactly what to do with him in that movie, uh, but it, it was... It was one of those things that you do get with pop stars where they have one great role in them, and that was it. But Boy had trained in acting, and I don't know if Rogue knew that when he made the film. I mean, it's quite lucky. I, I, I don't just. Uh, I don't think he's a great director of actors, honestly, mm. Nick Rogue. But he's had an immeasurably good run with like big name actors. Uh, Eureka, there's another one. I think he did. Oh, Gene Hackman. That's yes. an interesting role. The thing that I remember about that is there's a death scene, which is basically like um, Andy Warhol-esque art. Yeah. It's wild. <laughs> uh, and that's the, that's the vibe of Rogue, isn't it? He's, he does mainstream films in a very sort of countercultural way. Yeah, it it feels like they're going out of control and that uh, I read uh, an article, I think it was uh, Graham Fuller's Peaks for the Criterion edition of this, but I read an article about this film and it made a connection that I just slapped myself for not getting to before because he compared this film to Alan Resney. And okay. I thought, oh, yeah, obviously, when you look at the start of Hiroshima Monomua, yeah, that's prototype Nick Rogue. That's what you know, he's, he's drawing from, that's what he's inspired by. And it's so yeah. obvious now he said it, but I never got it. No, I haven't seen, I don't think I've seen many, really. I think I've seen Late Korea. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, Late Korea. I mean, Late Korea stuff for a lot of the French New Wave guys is often a bit dicey, but yeah. Like I think I can't remember the name of it. It was like a soap opera, play, a staged soap opera. It was weird. But yeah, yeah. yeah. On Amar, I think if that's being compared to Lisa, I need to watch that then. Yeah, I think the thing with uh, Rene is that he basically reinvented cinema grammar forever with his first couple of features. <laughs> and then after that, he must have just thought, ah, shit, what can I do now? And as you say, he, he tended to make films that looked like average soap operas for a while. When you, you've mastered it, where'd you go? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Nick Rogue is, 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 I mean, don't look now as well. Um, I do think that's like sort of top 10 horror movies of all time. Not in a sort of taste sense, just in the craft of it. Yeah. There's very, very few horror movies as well made as that. Yeah, I completely agree. And Don't Look Now is another great example of how this sort of editing, which could just be sort of tricksy, in any, it could mm. just be gimmicky in someone else's yeah. hands, really enriches it. Like the part of the power of that opening sequence, the death of the daughter in Don't Look Now, is that it's being intercut with the parents doing ordinary, banal things with no idea of what's about to happen to them. Oh, and it hits hard. It hits very, very hard. Um, yeah. Would you say Don't Look Now is your favourite rogue? I haven't seen, I mean, outside of this, it's not seen a rogue in a while. I mean, I didn't really particularly get on with this first time, but I think mm. I, was, I was younger then, and now I, I kind of get what it's going for a little bit more. So I need to revisit a few, I think. Yeah. I think Don't Look Now is very near the top for me. Don't Look Now is great. Uh, for a long time, Walkabout was my favourite, because Walkabout just 
he's one of those directors where I understand why people find his work a bit clever, clever and impersonal. But I think if you're on his wavelength, the films are very emotional. And I think Walkabout is very emotional. Uh, but now True. I've rewatched this, I think this is my favourite Rogue. I think it's this um, now. You can't really miss. I mean, he's got like three all-timers. Yeah. Uh, this performance, Don't Look Now, um, Walkabout. Eureka's pretty good. Bad timing, I haven't seen, but that has a lot of fans. That's the uh, Garfunkel one, isn't it? Yeah, another pop screen contender, actually. Yeah. That's a weird choice, but uh, yeah, he's he's just an artisan, really. Mm. Uh, I know that's a pompous uh, phrase that people use to charge like twice as much for slice of bread, <laughs> but you know, uh, his directing, I don't think. He, I don't know, maybe he was born in the wrong country at the wrong time, but I don't feel like he was ever understood. And this is probably another one of those. It got a cult reputation because not many people, it wasn't popular besides it having boy in it. Yeah, there was definitely that aspect to it. Uh, the British were fairly baffled by it and the Americans had the misfortune of getting a, a film, a version of it, which cut about 20 minutes, which I mm. see why you'd look at the man who fell to earth and think, ah, oh, there's a lot you could cut here, but in reality, there isn't. Uh, and it's particularly strange because even though this was the let it all hang out 70s, most of what was cut was the sex scenes. Wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's basically just removing a lot of Riptons are all there. Yeah, essentially, yeah, yeah. Ripton had, he'd been a sort of reliable character actor, mostly in things like Cassavetes films, anything that's kind of Mm. New York and underground was what Mm. he was doing. But he had this very notorious role in Maidstone, a film directed by the novelist Norman Mailer. Are you familiar with the the famous Ripton scene in this? I might know it by reputation rather than name. There is a scene in Maidstone, which, like all of Mailer's films, was semi-improvised, and like all of Mailer's films, is basically unwatchable, uh, <laughs> where Torn's character attacks Mailer with a hammer. And that scene was achieved by Rip Torn going up behind Norman Mailer and smashing him on the head with a hammer. Uh, it was Ooh. not scripted, it was not planned, mm. and... If any young impressionable children are listening uh, to this podcast, that's what you do when you see Norman Mailer. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I actually like some of Norman Mailer's books, but he was an unholy prick of a man. And I'm, I think seeing Ripton try to murder him with a hammer, if anything, increases my appreciation for Ripton. Well, yeah, I mean, I. He... It's certainly a different aspect of him. It's like when you find out that uh, Brian De Palma was an experimental yes. punk uh, director in the 1960s. You think, what? No, that's not right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's some stuff near the end of this film um, because it the action takes place over a very long time and throughout the whole of that long time, Boy's character, Thomas Jerome Newton, looks like David Bowie in the mid-70s because he's an alien. He doesn't age at the same rate. Uh, But all of the human characters in the film does do. Um, 
and there's a scene where Riptorn is made up as an older version of his character. And it is uncanny, isn't it? They look so much like Riptorn actually did when he was an old oh, yeah. man. I mean, it, it's amazing makeup as well, because yeah. the one that I, the movie I always think about when I think of actors being aged up is J. Edgar, when they said <laughs> Leonardo DiCaprio into a Muppet, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but this, it's... Yeah, you, you put the real elder Riptorn and him here, and besides the lack of hair, I think you're indistinguishable. I don't understand how it works so well because this was not a massive budget film, and as you say, for a lot, it's only quite recently I think that old age makeup has stopped looking shit. For a while, it was just always the worst bit of a film. Yeah, as long as they do it as makeup and not, um, we just go on to basically more cap some guy with like some weird tech. Well, and they have, do that for uh, the other way, don't they? They do that when they need an old actor to look young, and that. Yeah, I was sometimes... thinking of Star Wars, actually. Um, Peter oh. Cushing. Oh yeah, yeah. That was bizarre. I yeah. thought that was really ugly. That because it was basically saying the great bit of a Peter Cushing performance is what he looked like, and everything else we can just get anyone in, really, can't yeah. we? It's it's very ugly side of Hollywood. Yeah, but I think um, this is just not really Hollywood, is it? No, definitely not. It was a British and American co-production, and like a lot of British films in the seventies, it involves a lot of really frantic deals to try and get the budget up. And I'm sure a lot of people were very happy to have Boy in because he was an international name who also yeah. hadn't really had a big role in a film before, so he he would work for not much more than scale. I mean, uh, outside of him, at the time, the cast is very nondescript, really. There's no names, no named actors. There's no name, few names as actors. Um, Candy Clark had just got an Oscar nomination for her supporting role in American Graffiti before this. But yeah, other than, other than her, you have Rip Torn, who, as they very well known now, but mostly did very small experimental films mm. back then. Uh, Buck Henry is an interesting one who plays Farnsworth, uh, uh, the stock market guy with the huge glasses. I mean, the name just throws me. I'm sorry, <laughs> but it just does. <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. yeah They're both referencing I mean... the same thing, though. Inventor of television, Philo Farnsworth. Really? Yeah. Okay, that's, that's kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, as an effects piece, I mean, you think of sci-fi, uh, yeah, either era, I guess there wasn't as many big budget sci-fis then were sort of on the precipice, I think, of Star Wars. Yeah, this um, is just like a year or two before Star Wars. But you still think of uh, sci-fi as spectacle. Mm. And there's not much really on that level. Um, you get a few bits in a sort of a prototype spaceship. Yeah. Um, and some bits in the desert with some sort of toast train <laughs> yes. made out of meat. It's just a weird creative decision. Yes. Yeah. Roik's rationale for it all was that he'd seen 2001 and he thought, 
oh, that's the last effects film. You can't make things that are more realistic than that. So he mm. decided that if he was ever going to do science fiction, he had to go the complete opposite way. Uh, obviously, as I said, Star Wars was coming out soon. So commercially, he may have backed the wrong train there. But uh... <laughs> Well, it was a sort of a bolt out of the blue Star Wars. It can't be held against him there. Yeah, yeah. But I think it's it still feels like a route not taken in science fiction cinema. You can look at some things that came after and say, that's got a similar kind of mix of human drama and big sci-fi concepts. You could look at something like Under the Skin, I think is very mm. akin in a lot of ways to The Man Who Fell to Earth, but not much. I mean, I mean there's lots of directors who you could, uh, make a claim for being inspired by this. I do think uh, maybe Cronenberg took some mm. delight from this, not in a sort of sense of Cronenberg being a director of uh, grotesqueries. His stories are about humans in um, horrible situations, really horrible uh, heightened mm. situations. And what is the man who felt aware, if not that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think Cronenberg, particularly when you look at some of the more horror-based stuff like Rabbit or The Fly shares that belief that science fiction at its best isn't about, you know, what happens when there's a planet where the mushrooms have taken over and dolphins yes. are their slaves. <laughs> the best science fiction is what if we made one weird thing and put it in the world of today? Yeah, and uh, he, he understands the, the tragedy of these stories as well. Yeah. Um, I do think the fly. Uh, yeah, the fly oh, is yeah, a sad film. I think this is too, honestly. Yeah. Um, the way that the story unfolds, it's not particularly a positive ending for anybody, really. No, no. Yeah, it's uh, it, it carries a great emotional weight, and I can understand people being alienated by some of the stranger creative decisions and missing that, but I think it is definitely there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it has time skips, effectively. It has some time skips that are almost satirical. I love when boys first got to know Mary Lou, the Candy Clark character, and then it just cuts to this ridiculous thing of them happily married and she's ironing and getting him a drink and he's watching the TV. And it's like a, an old sitcom about a married couple, but it's just happened in one cut. Yeah, and it talks about a, a strained relationship and when did that happen? This is very yeah. erratic in the way it jumps about, but I guess that's just the nature of the beast, really. It's talking about people who live in different wavelengths. Yeah, that's very true. And I think it, one of the ways in which this is the ultimate rogue movie is that the, the time scale of it allows him to paint on such a, a bigger canvas. Like... I can't remember how much time passes in Don't Look Now. I mean, I suppose that's rogue. It could be like years or it could be a weekend and you're never quite sure. But this yeah. this is definitely something where decades pass and he gets to show how he can represent <laughs> that. To be honest, rogue has a habit of casting like ageless leading men. <laughs> yes, uh, he does. Bowie, ageless. Uh, Donald Sutherland was ageless until he wasn't. Yeah, um, yeah. He just has a, a great habit of picking these character actors, or actors, I should say. Mm. No, he definitely does. 
I always think, although this isn't the best example of it, maybe, but I always think the women in his films are superb. I think he casts very sort of intelligent, independent, kind of aggressive female leads, you know, really top quality people like Teresa Russell and Julie Christie and Amanda Donahoe. Complicated roles as well, and not just there to uh, pass the Bechdel test, I think, is the the thing that these characters need to do. Well, for a lot of 70s films, it wouldn't even do that. I mean, you watch, when you were watching a sexually explicit film made in the 1970s, you do not expect there to be much curiosity about the female leads in a life, but in Rogue's films, there always is that, I think. Yeah, she's very complicated and mysterious character, I think. She starts off as a well, she works at a hotel. Mm. Um and then she's just kind of an enigma after that. Yeah, because she, she always wants Ma, but she's fighting constantly with everybody around her to get Ma. Not in a sort of a financial sense, just in an emotional sense. Yeah, yeah, definitely in an emotional sense. And a lot of the strangeness of the storytelling is because it is tethered so closely to Thomas's perspective, where the very normal human things that Mary Lou is asking for, like, say, a husband who is emotionally available and doesn't act like a weirdo watching a huge bank of TVs and screaming every night, are totally incomprehensible because the, to Thomas, this is the normal reaction. Yeah. Uh, very interesting character, I think. Yeah, I think there's a danger with the man who fell to earth that you can spend a lot of time just saying, it's a film about, and whatever you say after that, you're right, because it feels like yeah. it encompasses everything. Much like their, their shoot horses, don't they? There's that sort, that's that sort of um, all-purpose satire too. Oh, I still haven't seen that. I must get round to that. Brutal film. So I think on that level, uh, <laughs> Man Who Felt Worth is a lot more watchable. Well, not watchable, <laughs> enjoyable, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And another one, though, is the corporate, uh, corporate satire it is, I guess. Yeah, I was going to say, it's, it's in some ways a film about capitalism. A capitalism record labels how uh, this hot young thing, David Bowie, comes out of nowhere, has all of these great ideas, including some, I don't know, one of his uh, technical technological innovations is a new form of music, which is like this weird cylindrical speaker thing. Mm. And music is printed on a ball. You put the ball in the middle of the cylindrical speaker and hey-ho, done. So you got this, you know, a new tech guy comes out of nowhere and all the big wigs eventually make money off him but when you know he wants to do something for him it's like oh no we've got to kill him kill him every he knows it's it's savage (laughs) they really go for it yeah as uh farnsworth will attest newton is not the only man who falls to earth in this film no no he is not and there's also a bit with a kind of weirdly shot but there's also a like a like a weightlifting thing. Oh, yeah, it's yeah. It's threw out of a window. I'm not great on technical terms like that, but it's threw out of the window and uh, stuff happens. Yes. Yeah, and the, the technological innovation that always strikes me when I rewatch it is that uh, Newton 
pioneers commercial space flight. Yes, yes, he does. He's like well, Elon <laughs> Musk, except not as weird and creepy. There was an um, Amazon guy, Jeff Bezos, didn't he do it as well? He did, yeah, in a spaceship mm. that really did look very much like a butt plug. It did, and he's more human than both of them, is Newton. <laughs> yes, he is, yeah. Say quite a lot. <laughs> I mean, in Britain, the association was always Richard Branson, that Richard Branson was our guy who always used to go on and on about how we'd have passenger flights to Mars by the end of the decade. And he, he, he is a tragic figure now, doesn't he? Yeah, he's just hateful. Honestly. All that money you spent privatizing public services and making them shit, and it couldn't even get you into space. No. Strain into politics there, though, so be careful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is what the big one that got me the corporate um, satire. Because mm. it, it's not what you'd usually associate with it, really. No. Especially no. at this point in David Bowie's career, he's capitalism. I don't want to say it like this, but it sounds really harsh, but capitalism kind of made him. Yeah, I mean, you can see satirical aspects in Bowie's work, particularly that there were some things on the man who felt the man who sold the world, a title that I always get confused with this, uh, that have a kind of satirical aspect. But I think most people miss that because all of the gay Martian bringing about the apocalypse stuff was more grabby, I guess. <laughs> yes, I mean, he. He is kind of uh, sexually ambiguous as well in this, isn't he? He does take a wife, but he doesn't really seem that bothered either way. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, the, there is a sort of, I can't remember the exact line, but there is a, a line in it that says that Newton is, is essentially bisexual, but he's bisexual because it's like, he's being asked to mate with a completely different species. Once you've done that, the gender is not really important. Yeah, it doesn't matter where the bumps and lumps are, it's all the same to him, coming from yeah. miles and miles away. It's also an interesting little thing about that. He implies that he's not the first. Mm. That scene in yeah. the desert with uh, with Repton, it's a great yeah. scene. It's so strange and... I suppose what I like about it is that it exists to open up questions that the movie is not interested in answering. I think Roig appeals to me because he thinks that that is actually good. You know, it's good if you go out of a movie wondering about things. Yeah, I mean, who, whichever pop stars could he be referring to? I don't know. Well, <laughs> Take yeah. Take pick, really. Yeah. But yeah, it, it, I do like that. Um, one of my bugbears of cinema is you, you go in and you think, yeah, that cinema exists, that, that movie, sorry, exists within the walls of that movie. So when yes. it started, the world began. When the movie ends, the world finishes. Little touches like that are clever story writing, I think. Yeah, definitely. It, it feels novelistic, and I don't just mean that because it's adapted from a book. I think there are plenty of films that are adapted from novels that do, as you say, have that feeling of, let us just go through the plot and then this universe ends. You know, this yeah. really feels big and baggy and broad-ranging. Yeah, I mean, and the story doesn't even finish. Yeah. At the end of the day, it has a little bit of a conversation at the end, which probably is anticlimactic. Maybe, I don't know, but it still implies that the story goes on. Yeah, and in some ways it comes to the only 
end that it can, that Newton's decline is pretty irreversible by that point. So it's like, well, what, what do you want? Do you want him to bring down an army of other aliens and invade the Earth? Because I don't think that's the way this story's going. No, no, I mean, it, it, it subverts a lot of things, really. Um, the biggest left turn for me was um, when you think of these movies where an alien is among us, and the whole idea is the military wants that alien so they can do butt stuff and experiment, basically. Yes. And they do that here, but it's a weird set of scenes there. It reminded me very much, I think partly because, you know, it's the same either, but it reminded me very much of the famous lumbar puncture scene in The Exorcist. Yes. Which is also another scene in a, a movie that's full of fantastical and horrific stuff, but the maybe the creepiest bit of both of those movies is the depiction of completely normal medical procedures. I mean, the thing that, in this case, the thing that got me most was when he was trying to remove his the bits in his eyes. Yes. Ooh. <laughs> it's, a, it's very nasty, the eye stuff in this. Um, it reminded me a bit of the only other time that I've ever seen anything like that is in uh, the Roswell alien autopsy film, where there That's is a, a bit where they, they take the corneas off the alien's eyes. And I did wonder if maybe the guys who faked that were big fans of the man who fell to earth. <laughs> maybe. It, it sets it up both ways, doesn't it? I mean, the first time you see him sort of... Uh, the first time Mary Lou discovers he's an alien. Yeah. He, he doesn't hide it. He's just laying in bed, basically. Mm. But uh, after that, there's a scene where he, he dresses as human um, and he puts the sort of... Uh, I don't know how you describe them. They're not contacts. They're sort of more uh, fleshy over yeah. his, over it's, his it's eyes. It's like a prosthesis, isn't it? A kind of prosthetic... Yeah, a fleshy prosthetic. It's, it's very, very gross. Very, you know, squeamish without using yeah. it. But uh, at least it's not opera, but still. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's really gruey as well. And that's effectively all he does to transform from human to alien to human, do that with his eyes, put a wig on. Yeah. And you wonder if that's part of the satire too, that the world is such an alienating place that even an actual alien has no trouble blending in. Yeah, maybe. I could go with that. I mean, it also saves massively on the effects budget. I'm sure that's part yes. of it as well. Well, yeah, yeah. It can't everything be well, everything can't be the blob, can it? That'd be a bit of a <laughs> weird transition. No, no. <laughs> There's a moment towards the end of the film that I really love that it just reminded me when you were talking about the sense of closure, but when Rip Torn is walking through that record shop. Yeah, that was lovely, actually. The, <laughs> yeah, because uh, what we're referring to, listeners, is in the background, there are several prominently displayed copies of what was then Boy's last album, Young Americans. It's generally the vibe of the record shop as well. I mean, even yeah. at our base level, it's, it's just lovely places. It's true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you haven't seen Licorice Pizza yet, have you? Not yet, no. 
I think it, its seventiesness and its rambliness will appeal to you greatly. Oh, I think. Cool, cool. But yes, um, I, I just love that young American's appearance because it's like saying, "All right, the spell's broken. You're about to go outside where to a world where David Bowie is actually a pop star." And it it, it doesn't hide it either. I mean, there's that mm. in the background as well, and there's a well, we're pretty deep into spoilers here. Oh, yeah, yeah. But um, he, David Bowie, lets, sets a record up called The Visitor. Yeah. For a Rip Torn to find. It says, yeah, I found it, didn't really like it, but then again, it's not for me, is it? So I'm like, they're being quite clever there. Clever, clever. Yes. <laughs> I don't know, though. Because it's literally not for him, of course. The the uh, I suppose it's the twist of the film, although that feels a bit crude. Um but he's recording it so that radio waves will carry it back out to his home planet, which is, it, it's, it's, there aren't many science fiction films that really get into that horrible fact that if you are going to go to a different galaxy, you are going to have to face the possibility that you will never see anyone you know ever again because of the time dilation. Yeah, here's the thing as well. I- I mean, uh, in the 1970s, I don't think it was as quite as prevalent as it was now, obviously. Um, but it's a movie about global warming as well. Yes, yeah. Which is a way, I mean, uh, it talks about water. He's come to this planet for water as well. And just, mm. I think this is a very intentional way of shooting it from Rogue, but he shoots people drinking like it's the yeah. most wasteful activity in the world. He does, yeah, yeah. And it's wild. I love it. And there's an irony to it, too, that as soon as Newton touches down on Earth, he ends up in the New Mexico desert, which is part, it's partly that sort of Englishman abroad vibe again. You know, what's the weirdest landscape that you can shoot David Bowie walking through? Well, it's, mm. you know, a, a Western landscape, a cowboy movie landscape, but... It, there's also the irony that he's travelled however many light years to get water and he's landed in the desert. I mean, that's, <laughs> that sort of sets the tone for the rest of his mission. I, mean, I don't even know if it was intentional, but it's one of those uh, contexts that's added in the time that you watch it, I think. Yeah, apparently in the Tevis novel, which I haven't read, it makes it clear that the water supply on this Newton's home planet uh, was destroyed by nuclear war. But I think they're, they're wise to leave that out. I think it, it although the figure of nuclear war is not totally irrelevant now, thank you, Mr. Yeah. Putin, but uh, it, it ties it a bit too much to that kind of 60s era he was writing in, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, some sci- 60s sci-fi is a little bit more yeah. on the nose than this is, but uh, thankfully, it mostly evades those sort of finger-wagging techniques that those movies adopted. Yeah, there's never a danger that Thomas Jerome Newton's going to turn out to be a metaphor for communists. Uh, no. <laughs> I think that that is maybe the one thing that the man who fell to earth is not about. It is about everything apart from the Red Scare. Um, if you can get a documentary uh, called Room uh, 127 about The Shining. Oh, room 237, yes. 237. Yeah. I imagine there's nothing here for that. Too. I don't know. There must be, <laughs> yes. Yeah. 
you you watch it and you feel like the inhabitants of Boy's Planet must feel when they're deciphering these radio signals. It does, particularly now, feel like it just comes from outer space. Films aren't constructed like this anymore. Films don't move like this anymore. And it's it's wonderful, really. I mean, it, you know, the, the new Hollywood is the term they use to sort of uh, group all of the stuff together, but none of the movies really felt the same. Mm, they all yeah. had a sense of... I guess the easiest way to describe it is a sense of danger about them. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Well, they could tell general stories that people could relate to, but they're used artistic and left field and outsider art techniques, like I said earlier, which if this movie was made now, I don't think there'd be anything in really in common between uh, the rogue version. Well, they have made a TV series based off it, which I haven't watched, but I am I'm sort of pleased that it's trying to continue rather than retell the story, which is, I mean, my nightmare version of a TV version of The Man Who Fell to Earth is just some dickhead watches it and goes, eh, we haven't seen all of the stock market transactions that made Newton rich. We could have a subplot with one of the board at his company don't like him and are trying to force him out. You know, it's just... I figured it would just be that shit. Apparently, it's not. Well, it, it just the whole point of the movie, anyway, is just this bolt out of the blue. Yeah, that's it. People aren't ready for him. Yeah, and he's not really ready for them either. And I don't think people were really ready for the man who fell to earth. That even in, as you say, this remarkable period of creativity and experimentation in Hollywood films, people still looked at this and said. What the fuck? Kind of just rogue through and through, though, really, isn't yeah. it? It's, yeah. I don't think, I mean, uh, the horror crowd has adopted Don't Look Now, but still, it's a weird movie, too. It is, yeah, yeah. Uh, walk about, same, I reckon. Yeah. I tried to, uh, I've had this autobiography, The World Is Ever Changing, for a while, and I tried to dip into it to do some research for this, but it's not really a book that you can use to dip into for research because, and this is obvious once I've realised it, it is told <laughs> in a non-linear fashion. So, uh, course. <laughs> of course. So anyone hoping to just open it and say, all right, where's the chapter on the man who fell to earth? Sorry, there isn't one. Yeah, so it's kind of like uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. That book, that book is a wild, weird, <laughs> uncontainable beast of a book. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, it, it's like, as you say, it's like Rogue's films that yeah. he seems to genuinely have this notion. And from interviews, it is a genuine thing. It's not like something he does because he's just artistically interested in it, but he does think that time is non-linear and he doesn't see things as happening in the order that most of us do okay it explains his movies like then yeah i think boy referred to him as an old wizard which is um firstly testament to the amount of cocaine he was taking but also sort of makes sense yeah yeah but uh the fact that his performance turned out so well um Bowie's, I think, is miraculous, really. 
Yeah, because he's going from zero to being a, a lead. I mean, he had acted before on stage. He'd done some film stuff, but most people don't, unaccountably, don't remember his appearance in a 1969 Lions Made Ice Lollies commercial. Uh, for most people, that's a fact, by the way. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> most people would say, understand wrongly but understandably, that his screen debut is The Man Who Fell to Earth, and it's an astonishing debut. Oh, yeah. I mean, even sort of a career pathwise, this is the sort of thing that a musician does when they're burnt out, absolutely yeah. burnt out, and they do something new. And I think it speaks to sort of the chameleon that Boy was really that when he burnt out, he just tried something new, even musically. Mm. Um, He is the metaphor for people who reinvent themselves. Like, uh, not to change the subject too much, but Chris Jericho is referred to as David Bowie of wrestling because he's constantly reinventing himself. I did not know that. He's just shorthand for people who are chameleons, really. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And... You know, one of the interesting things about rewatching The Man Who Fell to Earth as part of a run of Bowie-related films is that thing I alluded to at the beginning, which is that it's one of the very few lead roles he did. And I understand why, because like I say, he just released Young Americans, which was his first big album in the US. So... After this, he's really in a cycle of world tours, which doesn't leave much time to make a film. But it's remarkable seeing him absolutely carry a film. It is something that I don't think we would see again. I mean, even as far as pop star performances, I think it's still one of the better, really. Nothing really comes close. And I think part of that is what we were talking about earlier, which is that Rogue was not trying to make a pop star movie. You know, A Hard Day's Night was written as a movie for the Beatles. This was written as a movie for Peter O'Toole. Yes, I think that would have worked still, but I think the contexts that are added by it being boy are just to elevate this above and beyond what it probably would have ever been. Yeah, I think he he is very canny at using all of the cast, but particularly boys' screen personas in ways that are very, very shrewd. Hmm. But yeah, I, I like this a lot more second time around, I've got to say. I think I'm going to update my favourite films list on Letterboxd. I think I previously had Walkabout as the rogue entry on it, but I think I'll make it this instead. Yeah, you've only got one movie per director, because it just go on forever. I know, <laughs> I this. wanted it to be manageable, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but that would mean that my top 20 would have two films starring David Bowie in, because I've got this in The Last Temptation of Christ. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, that's two very different movies, isn't it? I mean, that's versatility, isn't it? To play Thomas <laughs> Jerome Newton and Pontius Pilate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was, like I said, he was a chameleon. Yeah. <laughs> But yes, if you enjoyed that, you can get a monthly bonus episode of This Here Very Show by subscribing to our Patreon. Uh, You can also check out more stuff, including, as we mentioned earlier, our sister podcast. It must be a sister podcast. uh, Directors Uncut at geekshow.co.uk. But in the meantime, uh, I've been Graham. 
And I have been Rob. And we'll see you next week with more Pop Screen. 